This is an LSE public lecture. I always like that, that phrase, a public lecture. I imagine people coming off the street thinking it's a bit rainy. I'll come in, see what's going on, you know, that kind of thing. I'm Mike Fisher. I work at the Social Care Institute for Excellence. We're running uh, a project jointly with LSE on knowledge transfer. We've had a series of lectures um, to look at what key people in the field uh, can give us because it's a very messy field. It's one of the, the things we've learned is it's a very messy field. A lot of work going on in, in health, but as many concepts as you can imagine um, under the sun, really. So one of the things we've been doing is getting people to come in and talk to us. I'm really pleased to, to welcome Phil Davis from Oxford Evidentia, which I haven't had to say before, Phil. Well, there you are. Oxford Evidentia, there you go. Did we get the pronunciation right? That's the question. I think I might be one of the few people who have ever heard Phil introduce somewhat insensitively to an international audience as speaking American. Um, I think what the uh, person meant was that Phil has an ability from his work in government, his, his work with the Campbell Collaboration, the American Institutes of Research, to speak plainly about what is a very complex topic, the, the topic of policy transfer, knowledge transfer and policy making. So I welcome very much, I think, this to your, your abilities to speak English, not American. <laughs> so I welcome Phil very, very much and look forward to hearing what you've got to say. Thank you, Mike. And uh, to Tehan, thank you very much for inviting me to, uh, to the LSE. It's, um, it, it's odd to be talking to this subject with the LSE. I did part of my undergraduate degree here almost 40 years ago, and I was taught by the likes of Richard Titmus and Brian Abel Smith and David Donaldson, people for whom getting research to practice didn't seem to be a problem. <laughs> I think I'm right in saying if you take the 1946 National Health Service Bill, a lot of it was written by either Brian or Richard, uh, either trolling down the road to Whitehall or them coming up here, but you can see a lot of their work in the original 46 bill for the National Health Service. So it's not as if we haven't done it or can't do it, or that we don't do it. It's just that we're now beginning to make it into an intellectual science in its own right. Uh, the very terms, knowledge transfer, knowledge brokering, um, what else do we have? Uh, uh, knowledge exchange, there's all sorts of terms. Um, and I really got involved with it because I've been, uh, as Mike was uh, suggesting, I've been an academic, mainly at Oxford University for about 22 years, but then I spent six and a half years in government in the Cabinet Office um, uh, with Steve Morris here for half of that time, where our job was to, in a sense, try and establish evidence-based policy across government, to raise the standard of quality of research that was done in and for government. And I think the third element was to try and make sure that research and research evidence played a significant part in policy making. Uh, and that taught me that there's a lot that you can do, but there's, there's all equally an awful lot you can't do to get uh, not, uh, research knowledge into policy and practice. Now, you notice I've said that it's the policy and practice, because I know people have got different interests here. My experience is greatest on the policy side, and they're not the same. I should say that ahead of time. But there are similarities I think we can work with for the purpose of this presentation. Um, and you'll see in some of the examples I'm going to give, some of them are in, in the policy field, and others are in more practice areas, particularly health and health sciences, because that's where I've done most of my own research and work. 
So what gap am I talking about? I took mine the gap. Um, I had an American visitor here last year who was riding the underground with me, and every station we got out at, they said, you know, mine the gap. And he just turned to me and said, why the hell do you have a gap? <laughs> Which struck me as a rather good question. If anyone has the answer to that, um, it does seem as a public policy issue. Why would you have a gap that people have to mind? You think a bit of pre-planning, they could have... I think it's through the history of the railway, but I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing. My gap is the gap that can exist, but doesn't always exist, between the research community and the policy community. And I want to be careful here because it's very easy to have stereotypifications. And I've tried to base my stereotypification on the best evidence we have. Jonathan Lomas is a name in the field that if you don't know, you should get to know. Jonathan is extremely able. He is a Brit uh, living in Canada. He was head of the chief executive of the Canadian Health Service Research Foundation. And a lot of the presentations today will draw on Canada because I think they're always 5, 10, 15 years ahead of us. And Jonathan has led the research into practice, the knowledge transfer movement, not only in Canada, but pretty much across the world. His group did a very interesting study in 2005. Um, they interviewed key policymakers, mainly in health and health services, to ask them, what do they understand by research? What do they understand by evidence? Where do they go for evidence? And so forth. He then went, his team went and asked researchers the same questions. And you need to read the report because it's very, very good. But I'm just picking up the headlines as they do in their, in their one page, and I'll come back to that later. The first point, point Martin, the first point is that policymakers said that they wanted evidence to be colloquial, which when they were pushed on it, said it had to be a narrative, it had to tell a story. Uh, and that certainly gelled with when I was working in the strategy unit in the cabinet office and weekly meetings that were around. Uh, what was going to be done for the week was about people trying to get a story from the evidence and the strategy pro programs we had to go down to either the number 10 to the Prime Minister's office or wherever they were working. So that telling a story is, is, is quite important for policymakers. Second, this is the one that frightens me, anything that seems reasonable. And I just want you to pause on that for a moment because for me that's a fairly low threshold of quality. I know all sorts of stuff that seems reasonable, but under just a little investigation is actually uh, either doubtful or just sheer nonsense. Um, and there's a spectrum in between. But I'm going to come back to that because you'll see we did a very similar study in, in Whitehall, and that came up again. A very low threshold for quality. Thirdly, quite reasonably, they want it to be policy relevant. Seems reasonable, they're trying to solve policy, do policy. They want it to be timely, which in government tends to mean yesterday, certainly within the next few days. That's the sort of timelines we work in, or we've worked in, I no longer work there. And lastly, a clear message would be very welcome. Uh, in other words, people said, tell me what the story is, and <laughs> what's the ending? So it's a rather simplistic notion, very simplistic from the way we go about, uh, I say we now, switching to my academic self, my schizophrenic person that I am, uh, which, if you see what the responses were from the policy, sorry, the research community, they were almost exactly the opposite. Researchers wanted evidence to be scientific, and again, when pushed on that, generalizable was the theme. 
context-free, invariant. Various other Latin terms for that, but they, they rolled out. They're not too many because they're Canadian. Second, it had to be proven empirically. And that's, that's again, that's a, that's a major contrast. We are, I think, rightly as academics, we're obsessed with doing things empirically. That's what we do. Okay? That, to me, is a bit of a cry from, well, something that seems reasonable. Not, of course, something that's empirical can't be reasonable the other way around. But I, I would put it to you that it's a different standard. Thirdly, again, quite rightly, academic people are concerned with a theory. Uh, they want a theory to hang evidence on. Uh, um, it, it has to have what, what I now call, really what we call, a theory of change, a logic model. Uh, if you like, how is this policy supposed to work? What, what is the underlying logic for it? And that can be either, you know, applied theory, or it can be general theory, or it can be Parsonian theory, if you wish, but it needs a theory to it. It's quite clear that's not higher on the agenda of policy people when they're thinking about evidence. Though, I have to say, I do witness a culture change to a certain extent. I've just come from a meeting at the Department of Health on a project I'm involved in, and we spent 20 minutes in a one-hour meeting. They, at their initiative, to discuss the theory of change. I was very impressed that it may be that people are beginning to say, if you don't have a theory that hangs, brings it together, or lays out how a policy is supposed to work, then policy ain't going to work. How long does it take us to work? Be honest, guys. As long as it takes, preferably with a five-year grant and about a million pounds, would be nice. Two million, given the overheads. Um, that's, again, a stereotypification. We can work faster than that, but it does help to have a bit of time to do our work. And I do think we think in years rather than months or weeks. I certainly do. And lastly, if you think of it, and this comes out of John Jonathan's work, he says that as researchers, we tend to focus on the caveats and the qualifications to our findings, not the findings. And this jailed with me. About the time this came out, I did a PhD exam. I mean, I, I, I was examiner um, at, at Oxford. Um, and the candidate had done a really good PhD, without a doubt. It was thorough, it was done well, and there was no doubt, well, she'd passed. But at the end of it, I asked the question I always ask, because it was asked of me at my, my PhD exam, or deep Phillips at Oxford, which is, so what did you find? Or actually, what I do, I say, if you're at a cocktail party, and you have got somebody who's clearly disinterested in you, and you've got 30 seconds, they're looking over your shoulders to find the next most interesting person, and they say to you, what was your, what was your PhD, what did it find? What would you say in those 30 seconds? And just try it on yourself, by the way. It's very, very hard. Uh, I, I've got a set spiel now, but by the time I get to the second point, they've gone to the more interesting person. But, but the point was, this, this candidate just froze and then started crying. I felt, this is awful. I felt like a brute. You know, what, I mean, it was a simple question. She said, I haven't followed I can't answer that question. So, to cut a long story short, uh, one of the things you can do at Oxford, as I'm sure at the LSE, other universities, you can you have to ch a month to change typos and things like that. We said, well, given you've got to make some corrections and pagination, just think about that issue and just let us know. She came back a month later and said, that was wonderful. I've been working on this for four years. I'd never you know, zoomed out. I'd never been able to think about what was the finding. I was so into the caveats, the qualifications. So, they look like stereotypification. This is a little bit grounded in empirical, qualitative empirical research by a very good team of people. Um, and now this is the cheesy bit. 
Uh, that's a bridge. Uh, and in fact, the group that David, David and I work on uh, for the WHO uh, is called the Bridge. We are, work, we are a bridge team. Bridge stands for something in the WHO. I cannot begin to think what it is. But it's trying to build this bridge between those two communities. Here's the advertisement. Uh, that's what I do. That's what our company, Oxford Evidentia, does. We, in, all short, in all many ways, we try to do it. We try to help the research design. We try to do systematic reviews, this, that, and the other. Um, and it really does require the ability to work from left to right and from right to left on the bridge. So that's the first element of the gap. Second, related to that, we were so, or I was so interested in this, we had a small team in the, um, in the cabinet office, sadly after um, Steve had left. We thought, well, let's see what that would look like in Whitehall. So we went and found 60 senior civil servants in Whitehall. And um, we didn't, well, I think they went and did the researchers, I didn't. But we wanted to, we asked almost identical questions to, and when I say senior civil servants, it was taken from the top 600, so they would be probably grade five and above, which is fairly, fairly senior, and to, up to very senior, though we only had one permanent secretary. And when we asked, and you can find this, it's called the Analysis for Policy, just Google it, it's put out by now the Treasury, it was the Cabinet Office, it's on the GSR pages. Read it yourself. Again, I'm extrapolating some of the key points. They wanted, for them, evidence was <coughs> what comes out in the end product, rather than how the information was collected or analysed. Some of them were a little more full and frank about that. They said, we didn't give a hoot about how you did it. We just want to know, what is it telling us? Okay. We assume if it comes from the, the Government Social Research Service, somebody has quality proved it for validity and all those nice things that we're concerned with, external validity and reporting and what have you. Second, they said anecdotal evidence is the most useful. And we pushed them on that. We said, well, why? Well, again, it's this point. It tells a story and it connects with people. In a way, they said that research often doesn't. I want to come back to that, because that's a shame, because our work is, is only grounded in what people tell us. Whether you're doing a survey or an ethnography, it's, it should be grounded in that. They like things such as, these are quotes, real-life stories, fingers in the wind, local and bottom-up evidence, evidence that, again, comes from real people in the real world, which is the same. I don't know where else our research comes from. Whichever way we do it, we should be, if we're doing field work, either by survey, experiment, or qualitative methods, we should be providing that local, uh, local bottom-up knowledge. But, and this was very important, it's not that they were anti-science, or they were Neanderthal. They're very, first of all, very intelligent people. Loads of experience. They pointed out, if we try and move anywhere without having a scientific basis, we get fleeced in the house. In other words, they can't just rely on the anecdote. They need to have something there to substantiate because, well, the house is one place, but the select committees, the world, now that we have these little instruments here, we, can, we have the internet, it's very easy to find out what the evidence is in most areas. Um, so you can easily get caught out now. 20 years ago, you could bluff you could say, oh, this is research evidence, and nobody ever find out, because by the time you found a microfiche and then how to work it, and then, you know, spent three hours blinding yourself, you'd have given up. Whereas now, 
even by Google and Google Scholar, you can find a lot of evidence pretty easy, easily. So it's, it, it, it's, it, it's trying to have this uh, uh, slightly lower quality stuff, if you like, as well as having the research evidence. <coughs> we pushed them on why they didn't use research evidence as much as other types of research mm -hmm. as, as, as evidence. And just let me rehearse with you some of the, this is from across the 60s, some of the phrases they came up with. They said it was too long, research evidence. It's verbose, too detailed, too dense, impenetrable. Don't worry, it gets better. Actually, it doesn't. Too much jargon, too methodological, untimely, and irrelevant for policy. Apart from that, they said it's okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, now that, that's an overview, that's a litany of, of, of negative things. There were many positive things they said, but I purposely taken those out because I think some of them fit. Sometimes our work is, certainly when it goes into the public domain, all those things there. It's not to say it has to stay like that, and that's the knowledge transfer issue. How do you get it from this? And it needs to be this. Don't get me wrong, we need to have very detailed analysis and so forth. But that is not going to get into policy, nor, by the way, as you'll see in a little later in the talk, to practice. And then we asked them where they went for evidence, and that in itself was interesting. Not, I don't know if you can see that, but um, I would say either for policy, for practice here was when you're looking at implementation issues, how do you implement policy? Where, where do you go for evidence? I'll read it in case you can't see them. Number one was special advisors. Not necessarily number one always, but reminding us that when you work in a policy environment, certainly in Whitehall, you are surrounded by special advisors who are brought in largely by the political party. They're politicos. And they've got a political message, and they can drive that message very strongly. And you certainly don't want to be going against the special advisors, so you need to make sure that somehow evidence aligns with it or can challenge it on very good grounds. And of course, so this is often very much belief-based evidence or opinion-based evidence, if that's not a contradiction terms. Second, experts. I've put experts in quotes because... Well, there's a history throughout policy making of experts getting it blindingly wrong. Uh, two instances we had in the, in the time I was working in the cabinet office was, uh, uh, well, one was just before, was, was BSE. But the one in real time was the, 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 the policy debacle over the foot and mouth outbreak in 2002. They were simply listening to the wrong advice, and in fairness to the then MAC, I think it was called, and now DEFRA, they were getting a different piece of advice every day from a different research constituency. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, uh, except the fact they did everything wrong. And when it was reviewed by the Royal Society three years after the uh, hazard, a hazard analysis, the, the last costing was about £11 billion pounds was spent on foot and mouth when it need only have been under a billion because they did everything wrong. Relying, the experts were simply not up to speed with foot and mouth, how it's transmitted, and there's a fight between the Met, the Met Office, which is saying it's airborne. You know, putting disinfectant all over Britain doesn't make a tinker's customer that it won't work. Stopping people walking in the Lake District won't work, it'll just move anyway. And it's very difficult to get a really robust scientific expertise on that. Professional associations, the BMA, the 
law society, you can think of it would be, think tanks, opinion formers, lobbyists and pressure groups. These two together are important. It's not that think tanks aren't research-based, they are. It's not that lobbyists or pressure groups aren't research-based, but usually both of them are selectively research-based, particularly lobbyists. And that's a very major problem, is that you can probably find evidence to do anything you want with policy or practice if you select from the field out there. I hope, as researchers, as academic researchers, we are at least trying to get the balance of evidence from the comprehensive review of what is out there. The media, terribly important for many people, both what the media reports, but also how it reports it. So very sensitive to what the media is putting out into immigration, the number of people in, who, are, who are coming in and going out of the country, which is often very different from actually what the data are. Okay? Or when there is an epidemic, like the flu epidemic, it's usually got a few noughts on the end to what it actually is. But it's very important if you're trying to make policy when there's that, that machinery of, of, of media going on. And lastly, they said constituents, consumers and users. What our ministers, what members of parliament bring to us from the constituencies, that's an evidence we can't ignore. Fair enough, that's a democracy, that I fully accept that. And then it stopped. So, given I was doing most of the interviews and ran the three focus groups we did, I said, well, what about research evidence? And the invariable answer, academic evidence. No, it just gets in the way. I thought, my gosh, this is, I was very defeated. By the way, we'd just written, Steve, the conference of this, we'd just written something called the Magenta Book, which was the guide to doing policy evaluation. They weren't looking to that too often, which was terribly depressing. I think they're doing it more now. So, we were actually at the bottom of the pile, which I have now characterised as the plankton. <coughs> and I think that we should be trying to get up the food chain, if that is the way the food chain works, towards the sharks. And I think that's what knowledge transfer is about. It's trying to get this work further up the field, or certainly interacting with these other elements. And they are all opportunities. This is an opportunity for anybody who wants to get research and evidence. Because they have a come on to say that they have the access and the interpersonal networks, which is very important. If you want to take a message today, interpersonal networks are crucial. I'll come on to that. Okay, from our point of view, we providers of, of evidence, there is sometimes a supply problem. The, the model I'd like to, I do work with, is, is that we have a government and a practitioner, a policy community out there, and us, I'll do that again, I like that, coming in and joining here, but not getting absorbed. We keep this independence, but we connect. Okay? And that bit here can be a little bit, or it can be half, or it can be three quarters. Usually it's about somewhere around there. But it at least can and wants to connect. Now, there's another perfectly reasonable position for academics to take, and that's to come along and slam on the brakes and make sure that there is a red, get it? Make sure there's what people call the boundary distance. If you look into systems theory, we must maintain a boundary distance. Because otherwise, we get absorbed into this, we take on their agenda, we lose our objectivity, <coughs> and we become the paxes, whatever term we use, the paxes of government, we become the four guys and what have you. I think that's a perfectly respectable position. I don't hold to it because I like 
And I think I'm able to work, and many people in this room I can see work in this area, without losing their independence. But I do acknowledge that there is a challenge there. Once you come into this world, you can <coughs> at least be perceived to have lost that important boundary distance. And I just want to make some key points what I think about that boundary distance. Tell me if you, maybe if you agree or disagree. First of all, I'm arguing that they're largely systemic differences. They're not ad hominem. That's very important. It's not that academics don't get it, or that they're useless, or that they're head in the sky. It's more systemic. The system of knowledge production and knowledge use are different systems. The systems that we, that, well, let's explore a little further. I think we have different values. We have different priorities and different expectations. And I think, to a large extent, that should be the case. We certainly work to different timetables. Back to the age-old tension within academia of are we collecting knowledge for its own sake or knowledge for action? Back to Marx, back to Weber, go back to Aristotle, you've got that tension. You know, are we just pursuers of knowledge and don't give a hoot what anybody does with it? Which, by the way, I still agree. I still think it's a good position to take. But, you know, the old Marxist maxim, knowledge is action, knowledge is power. That you have, the knowledge cannot be action-free, it has to have a connection. Another dimension of that is that largely in the research, the academic research community, and even the independent private sector community of research, they see their job often as challenging, to challenge the policy, to challenge the received wisdom, rather than trying to problem-solve. And the knowledge broker, the knowledge transfer specialist that we're talking about, has to do both. That's another take-home message. I don't think you could do this problem-solving <coughs> unless you start from a position of challenge. Because you can challenge and still come to a solution, or at least propose other solutions. But if you don't have somebody in the <coughs> policy process saying, are you sure you want to do that? Or are you sure that's the way it works? Or are you sure that that's a priority? Then you're not going to be able, to, I would suggest, to, to problem-solve. I often do quite a lot of talking, uh, public talking on evidence-based policy. One of my annoying one-liners is that evidence-based policy is no substitute for thinking-based policy. That's very important. So I think many people see evidence-based policy as it's become a buzzword. It's you know it's a very mechanistic idea. You know, plug in some evidence and out will come some policy solution. Evidence to me never tells you what to do. It doesn't have a life of its own. You bring it to life. It has to be thought. It has to be interpreted. It has to be weighed up. It has to be appraised. Yeah. <coughs> so that's why it's very important that we do have thinking-based evidence as well as just sheer evidence. And that's why I think it's a very important thing anywhere, within government or outside of government, to play what's often called the critical frame role. And to acknowledge the different sorts of evidence, sources of evidence. And I think, you know, I, I'm... I'm I just listed them and I showed you what the civil service use. The one that they did mention, but I put in here, because I think this is growing, is what I call ideologues evidence. Particularly the belief-based evidence that seems to be creeping into a lot of public discourse, which is of course a consequence of having a diverse open society, which is right. But it means that all sorts of people are now informing the policy discourse because they believe it. They believe it on abortion, they believe it on the world's flat, 
They believe it on all sorts of things. And it's just interesting for me, the mob, that it's possibly having greater influence than it maybe did 20 years ago. I don't know. But I think belief-based evidence, institutionally belief-based evidence, is, is, is something that we have to recognize. Okay. Now, before I look to how can we fix this, and I, obviously I think we do, I wouldn't be here otherwise, let me just also just remind us of the factors other than evidence that go into policy making and indeed practice decision making. I'm arguing, I think, hope most people in this room would want evidence of some sort, I would hope scientific, social scientific research evidence to be at the heart, the centre of decision making. But we know that certainly in policy making, what drives policy is never going to be evidence, it's going to be values, ideology, beliefs, that just mentioned, and indeed the decision making context, which in the policy world of certainly national politics is about five year elections, manifestos, now those ridiculous presidential style uh, so-called debates, which to me just completely missed the point. Uh, that's what drives policy now, not people sitting around <coughs> sadly reading the British social policy and trying to come up with a reasoned response. It's driven by values, and if we forget that, we've, we've, lost the, we've lost the argument. Second, it does rely on people's expertise and experience. Civil servants are not stupid, they're not neophytes. They've been around a bit. They've seen a bit. They've seen different governments. They've heard the arguments every which way. They've been in government for more than... But still with the moment, we just had a long period of one government. But even within that, there are different nuances. If you've been in government for 30 years, you've probably seen four governments, four, four completely different sets of ideas. So they, that builds up an experience and expertise, which I want to come back to later. And, and what I'm trying to do here, because I'm lousy at graphics, I'm trying to show that these things interconnect. Okay? And if we can get that experience, particularly when it's trying to interpret evidence, to give value to it, to give meaning to it. The second judgment. Uh, policymakers, practitioners, have to make judgments, they have to make close calls, often in very tight timelines of very difficult situations. Just think of all the difficult decisions the social workers have been accused of not making good decisions and judgments in cases like Baby P and the whole history of that. Well, it's a hell of a close call, but it, is, it isn't just about using the evidence on what a good child intervention practice is, which is important. It's in the, in the far of line, in the line of fire, rather, you, you, you really do need to have a call on it, and you might get it wrong. Fifthly, resources. If anybody tells you that evidence-based policy is doing what works, I don't, I don't think that's anywhere near right because lots of things work in policy and in practice, but then they can't work given the availability or the lack of availability of resources, which of course is something we're really running into at the moment. So to me, evidence-based policy is what works at what price, or what cost rather, to achieve what outcomes, and that's very important. So when people say what works, well, what are you trying to do? If you don't have an outcome and a series of outputs and activities that you're trying to achieve, so when people say, oh yeah, it's the what works movement, uh, how evidence-based policy is characterised, I think it falls way short. Resources are crucial. I repeat, many things work in public policy, but if you haven't got the resources to do them, you're not going to be able to use them. 
Fifthly, sixthly, don't let us forget that policy making and professional practice organisations are usually highly bureaucratic. Uh, I remember very early when I joined the civil service and I used to ask Steve, actually, why the hell do we do this? And the answer was usually, well, we've always done it this way. Okay? I wasn't saying we did it the best way, but we've always done it this way. Okay? And that's the way organisations work. And there is a sort of an inbuilt, if you like, stationary model of how people work uh, and how they engage with, with evidence. I mentioned lobbies and pressure groups. I want to say it again because because of their, in fact, because of their success, I put it up there, because lobbyists seem to be a lot better than some of us in the research game. I don't think researchers see themselves as lobbyists. Maybe they should. But they're not as good as getting the access at using that 15 minutes of contact with a senior policymaker or a minister, even better, or a prime minister, in 15 seconds, and using it. And I think that's something we might be able to learn. Is how, do you, how do you spend, how do you get the special moments? I'm going to come back in a minute to the KT moment, the knowledge transfer moment. If you can find it, use it. And lastly, not to be forgotten, again, it's coming back to real politics, I guess, is that lots of policy making is just responding to everyday pragmatics, everyday contingencies. It's either flooding or drought. You said we can have both this month. Um, in Oxfordshire last week, we had a, we had a, dr um, a drought call. Well, turn our taps off. This week, we're going to have a flood problem, apparently, because it's rained for three days. Quite extraordinary. So it can be minor things, relatively minor things like that. Or it can be... Um, people flying planes into New York in 2001, which is probably the biggest single contingency that has transformed across the world policy thinking and policy priorities. You look at the budgets of any country in the world, it, the proportion of the budget now going to security and going to anti-terrorism is significantly higher than it was in 2000, 2001, which means it isn't there to go into healthcare social care, transparent, so And I think we sometimes underestimate that. Uh, for those who are, there aren't many people older than me, probably in this room older than me, but there was a Prime Minister called um, Harold Macmillan, who was once asked why things go wrong, he said, in his Edwardian accent, events, the Edwardian, events. And it is, it is events happen, and that's what governments have to respond to. My point here is that that's, the argument is you can't use evidence when you, when you have a crisis, okay? You just have to act. I think if in 2002, when we learnt, I was coming back from the Campbell meeting, so it being in February 2002, that there'd been an outbreak of foot and mouth, if they'd sat down for a week and actually collected the evidence on the science, on what had worked in other countries, and worked out a unified strategy, it would have taken a week, maybe, we might just have responded to that contingency better than we did, because it went on for a year and a bit, if you remember, it cost £11 billion, pounds and, and even then, it took another year after that to get the policy right. The policy, by the way, the, the correct policy, is to vaccinate the herd. It's as simple as that. That's what the evidence tells us. That's what Argent Argentina does, which is the, big, the largest beef producing nation in the world. That's what the US does. That's what Canada does. That's what most of Europe, Europe does. Continental Europe does. So you can still engage with evidence even when you're up against a very real crisis. I would mention Iran. 
<coughs> so to end this, this bit of it and then get on to so what do we do about it? Evidence-based policy for me, I guess when I was an academic, I'd have left it there. It's about helping people to make better decisions. People, not just politicians and civil servants, but also people who are making policy in social care, in the health service, in the police service at the ground level, or the administrative level, to make better decisions and achieve better outcomes by using the best available evidence, I would say, I would say from research, but I acknowledge from other sources. I'd probably left it there, it would be a definition. But I would now have this add-on and integrating it with decision makers' knowledge, skills, experience, expertise, and judgment. My argument is if we can bring these two worlds together, you've got a very powerful tool for making better decisions, for developing policy and practice in a more informed, and I would think probably a more successful way. We can, just, we can stop there and discuss that if you like. But I do have a few ideas just to, just if I may take a few more minutes. What works? in terms of getting research into practice. Only some of this I think I could see is even half evidence-based. But I was up, people said, you've been around a bit, Phil, what do you think works? So I shall try and substantiate every one of these claims, but some of them are just, I think, I'm just throwing out as what I think seems to be the best balance of knowledge at the moment. First of all, is to understand the policy process. So I'm going back now to policy. I, I flip between, I'm sorry, but if you're... A lot of my work is, I'm working in South Africa at the moment a lot, very much trying to help the South African government get policy into practice, into, sorry, evidence into policy. And first of all, I want to present to you the rational model, almost to say to ignore it. The, the rational model, and you'll find these in any government department, they will put the stuff on the wall. I think this is from DEFRA, DEFRA, but it may not, it could be DWI, I don't know, it doesn't matter where it comes from. But they're, they're always circular, and they've always got these logical steps that you go around. It's as if, okay, Week one, okay guys, we're going to understand the situation. Okay, week three, right, now let's develop and praise the options. Week six, right, you ready for delivery? It would be, you know, there's the Romef model, that's on the treasury pedals, there's all sorts of models. They're always circular. And that's usually land up coming out their own rear end. But anyway, they go around and around, it's a very rational model. Now, I, I, I do believe you can, you can impose this what Kaplan, does anybody ever read Abraham Kaplan nowadays? Wonderful book called Reconstituted Logic, 1964. Kaplan says that what we do in, in, in the research world is we impose a reconstituted logic upon a logic in use. And that's, that's we need to do that because we're trying to bring order to the world. So this brings order to, to we believe this is the way it works. And it, you, can, you can do that. You can sort of break down the policy cycle roughly. But a pal of mine who works at CLG, Department of Community and Local Government, says, Manifel, this is what policy making is like. Uh, you know, the details don't matter. Lots of agencies, lots of people, lots of bodies, lots of quangos, lots of measurement things, lots of uh, regulatory things. It, it, the, 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 I, I've chosen this particular diagram because it's just spaghetti. It's, it's, it's a bit hey, it's a bit haphazard, chaotic. Okay? And it's probably more like that than the rather neat model that we often present and say, here's our policy model. Because understanding the policy process is done, so how do you get into that? And how do you make some sense of it? But if you like, this is the logic in use, to use Kaplan's term, how to develop the reconstituted logic. So that's the first point. To understand the policy process, I'll say a bit more about that. 
which I'll do now. How does policy get made? Again, I turn to Jonathan Loomis, an earlier work of his. He points out that policymaking isn't an event. It's not a timetable. We talk about the policy timetable, and I'm going to do so in a minute. But it's a process. And, and he says, in I think a really great article, seeing policymaking as a rational process, quote, fails to do justice to the ethereal nature of that diffuse, haphazard, and sometimes volatile process called decision-making. Okay? It's a bit murky out there, to paraphrase. And, 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 and to understand the policy process, you have to understand its murkiness and with a bit of luck, get into it. So I'll just move on twice. Yes. <clears throat> so I'm trying to get much on one slide. And another point, which is my third click here message, because I agree with this. The unit of research transfer is rarely the single study. In fact, just let's stop there. I want to say that again. It's rarely the single study. The thing you're on today's show in the morning, a study has shown, I immediately turn off and go and do something else, because I don't care. That study only becomes important when it's put back into the corpus of all the other studies that have been done, so we can get a more overview analysis. So Jonathan Lomer says, it should rather be the summary and synthesis of knowledge across the entire spectrum of stages in the process. So, two things. It means we've got to synthesize our knowledge as researchers. That's what the systematic review movement's about, meta-analytic movement, the rapid assessment movement. Mike has been talking to me about just a moment ago. But it's also synthesizing those other sources of knowledge. You can't ignore them. You can't ignore what lobbyists and pressure groups, think tanks, and all sorts of weird sods and bods bring to the. You have to somehow deal with that. And a lot of it is about sifting and trying to make sure what, where does the balance, the balance of evidence lie. Okay, how does it get used? How does research get used? We're getting a much greater knowledge of this now, and I'm just going to bring you three of who I think are the best researchers in the field. In the healthcare field, Jonathan Gabe, Andre LeMay, did a lovely ethnographic study of how doctors use research evidence. I've been working in health service research now for 30 years. I was a co-founding member of the Cochrane Collaboration, which if you don't know what that is, it does systematic reviews of evidence in healthcare. And as you might say, we're not to help develop the Campbell Collaboration, which does it for more social care and education, things like that. So we'd like to believe that doctors rationally sit down, read the British Medical Journal, look up the New England Journal, read a couple of Cochrane reviews, and then go into their practice in the morning and teach. That's uh, a treat. I, must, I was in a strange situation once when my GP, knowing what I did, it was, it was a very small um, uh, 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 insect infection said, shall we look at the Cochrane Review? And I thought, no, just, just give me an antifungal, for God's sake. But he wanted to show me, really did use evidence. What Gabby and May found was that it's, it, well, what did they find? It, clinicians really, they, sorry, this was an, an ethnography. They, they went and interviewed, they hung around, they did all the stuff that ethnographers do so well. It was a good ethnography. Admittedly, only in two, two clinics, but it's very nicely done. Clinicians rarely access and use explicit evidence from research or other sources directly, but they relied on mind lines. That's the name of their paper, mind lines, in the BMJ. Collectively reinforced, internalized, and tacit guidelines. These are informed by brief reading, but mainly by their own and their colleagues' experience. See, it comes up again. Their interactions with each other and with opinion leaders, patients, pharmaceutical reps, and all sorts of other bodies and so on, okay? 
In other words, even clinicians are guilty of actually, well, not using research in the way that, that rational way. It's not they ignore it, and we'll come back to how it actually percolates into people's thinking in the last slide. But they actually use a range of methods, including just, well, the next point, interpersonal networks. That's probably the next take-home message. Is you, I think I've already said that, so it's the same take-home message repeated. Is that understanding the interpersonal networks within which key decisions take place is crucial. And if you can join it, that's even better. Knowledge, this is from Trish Greenhall. Many of you will know her. Uh, late at this parish, now at uh, UCL. Is she at? Where's Trish now? Is she at? UCL. UCL, okay. Knowledge depends for its circulation on interpersonal networks and will only diffuse in these social, if these social features are taken into account and barriers overcome. I think Trish there is saying if you don't understand the social network analysis, the social interactions that take place at key decision points, you're not going to get knowledge. Uh, you're not probably going to get research into practice very easily or very effectively. Point made also by Sandra Nutley, who writes very well on these things. Sandra's picking up here not only on the network, the importance of networks, but also on this use of tacit knowledge as well as explicit knowledge. Don't get me wrong, I don't want us to stop doing research or using it. But she says that organisational knowledge is thus seen as a continuous and dynamic interaction between tacit, that internal hard-to-explicate knowledge that you have, your interpersonal networks, and the explicit knowledge that you'll find in the BMJ, the Cochrane Library, or on the websites of the Social Care Institute of Excellence. A core issue for both knowledge management and research use is the need to develop a better understanding of the interplay between this tacit and explicit knowledge. And I think the knowledge transfer, knowledge brokerage industry, which is becoming, is getting better at that. We are, it's like case history. We're building up case history. The group that Dave, Dave and I are involved in, the bridge group, are trying to bring that together. In fact, one of our members even wants to have something called implementation science developed as a science, where we, we sort of be an umbrella term for that. At the implementation stage, how you draw upon both explicit and tacit knowledge, I think that's a very interesting concept. It's coming from Finland, by the way, um, in terms of why it's earlier comments of me. A non-bank-based uh, uh, economy. And lastly, in my pantheon of great people who write well on this, probably the grandparent mother of them all will be Carol Weiss, Weiss, if you want to pronounce it, who I think has always written extremely clearly on this, and now, 30-odd years ago, wrote that it is true that cases of immediate and direct influence of research finding on specific policy decisions are not frequent. I started out this talk by saying I thought Richard's Titmus and Brian Abel Smith did have, uh, uh, was an example 50, 60, 70 years ago almost, of taking research knowledge and almost building a health service around it. That doesn't happen very often. But it can, but not very often. To acknowledge that we don't have that direct role is not to say <coughs> that research can't have the influence on policy. And she, she probably know, those of you who know her work, talks about the theory of percolation. <coughs> coffee pots. She makes the same point again. I'm tapping that same point. I want to get it. She says research provides a background of data. 
empirical generalizations and ideas that affect the way policymakers think about a problem. And it can take a considerable period of time. I was at a conference recently where the speaker after me said, on, he's done some analysis, and I haven't read his piece, it takes 19 years, and that might, might know it, it takes 19 years to get a research finding into policy and practice. By the time it's gone through all the, you know, first of all, getting it reviewed, getting it published, and then getting people to read it, and then getting it to be percolated. So it's actually in the mindset that it takes 19 years to do that. And that's in the medical field. So presumably in the social care, education, uh, our field, presumably it's even longer. It could take longer. So it takes some time for people to think uh, things like just small, the, the Gini coefficient, for instance. It used to be a technical term that only economists use. A lot of people now sort of know that term, certainly policy circles. They, they argue it's, it's, it's percolated through as a concept. Okay? They know what it means. They don't know the exact mathematics behind it, but they know that it measures what it measures. Okay. Ideas of research are picked up in diverse ways and percolate through to office holders in many offices <coughs> that deal with these issues. And that percolation effect is just something I want to leave with you because I think that's <coughs> the, the, the opportunity for us is to really see how we can get use those four things: the policy process, how research, how policy is made, how research is used, and how interpersonal networks to. To, to, to work that percolation to our benefit. Only two more big points, then I'll show. Getting research into policy, it does help to acknowledge users' needs. I've mentioned timeliness, I've mentioned policy relevance, I've mentioned clear message. But let me just go back here to draw a distinction I didn't before between operational uh, timeliness and strategic timeliness. Uh, one of the joys of when I went to work in the strategy unit in 2003-04 was there were a group of people who were only working on government or Britain 2015-2020-2025. There's now a group I'm going to be with them tomorrow in debt, Department of Environment and Climate Change, who are working on 2050. They are just taking those bigger time spans because we're not going to stop climate change by next year. We're not going to slow it down faster. We're, not, we're only beginning to understand the science of it. So they've got a real long-term strategic opportunity. Steve and I were involved in a project which is going to be celebrated next week, next week as it comes to its fruition, 11 years later, called the Employment Retention and Advancement Project uh, that we started in 2001, I guess. And we were very much told, almost go away for two or three years and plan this, test it. Do a randomised control trial. Do a demonstration project. Because government doesn't need to do anything on that at the moment. Well, it probably needed to, but, but it wasn't within its timetable. And there are moments like that. Uh, another project I'm involved in South Africa, we, the things that the President wants to do by 2014, there's other stuff that's not going to be done for another 20 years. So where you can get into those more longer-term strategic directions, there's a huge opportunity to get research planned and and working with the policy community. But the point I want to make here is, um, is really to work with professionals. What do they have to do to do their work? And some of you may be familiar with the Professional Skills for Government, which was introduced in 2005. 
by um, Sir Andrew Turnbull, and very much encouraged by Professor O'Donnell, the existing head of the civil service, to make the civil service more professional. They've been trying to do that, by the way, since 1830. Um, I don't mean half past six either, I mean since the year 1830. Um, and it was to give them a set of key competencies against which they will be hired, fired, appraised and promoted and bonused. You don't have bonuses anymore because of the new government. But it was, there, it was to build into the appraisal system what you need to do to be a, a, a progressing civil servant. And clearly, when you join the service, even into the senior service, you can't have all of these. But by the time you get to a grade three to one level permanent secretary, you should have all of them. When they did the first round of professional skills for government, this was not on the, at all. And one of the things that the government analytical services did, GES, Economic Service, GSS, the Stat Service, GORS, the Government Operational Research Service, and GSR, our service, Social Research Service, we managed to get this put on as a core requirement. In other words, Theoretically, they're supposed to have, they have to use, they have to be able to analyse and use evidence. I say theoretically because the more I talk to people, it's the one that tends to drop off the appraisal list. And if you want to know what they've got to do, that's what it says they have to be appraised. They have to anticipate and secure appropriate evidence. That's a golden opportunity for us to get knowledge transfer to help them with that. Tests for the delivery, deliver, deliverability of policy and practice, <coughs> including, as I'll show you in a moment if I can, do some pilots, do some, test, do some test runs. Again, particularly where you're working in the more strategic area. They have to use evidence to challenge decision-making, to identify ways to improve, find a better way, go find something that does work at a cost with a certain outcome. Champion a variety of tools for collecting and using evidence. Don't just rely on economists. No disrespect to economists in the room, but there often is a tendency to say the analytical community in government is the economists. Well, they're important, but there are other analytical services, there are other analytical tools. Don't just use the Green Book, which is the government's method of doing economic appraisal. Think about using the Magenta Book, Stephen Iroh, which is about trying to think about systematic reviews, about doing appraisals, evaluations, uh, and, and so forth. In short, uh, uh, the use of evidence is consistent with the wider government requirements. This is basically what is called the broader perspective. It, it's also an effort to try and get government to be joined up and not do wholly contradictory things, such as sort of the Department for Transport was trying to get more planes to fly in and out of Heathrow under the blue skies policy, open skies policy, to make Britain more attractive to the world and boost this, that and the other, profits and banks. And, yeah. and the Department of Environment was saying we've got to reduce the use of airline transport by 20%. It was the same government, same policy at the same time. It just hadn't joined up and it actually somewhat imploded that one. Uh, and working partnerships. So every one of those, I will put it to you, and these slides will be available, is an opportunity to get research into practice, policy into policy. And this KT moment, this is the last theme, I promise you. If you can find the KT moment, the knowledge transfer moment, and use it, let me suggest how. I mentioned the point already twice. How doing things strategically and collaboratively between researchers <coughs> and policymakers, uh, it, you may be aware in government there was a bit of a transformation in the, in, in the mid-2000s 
to do much more what, what is it, what is it called? Um, uh, co-location, which is to try and have policy teams and researchers working it, together in the same office and often the same little quartet of open plan. Um, we can help. There's often an opportunity to help in developing this theory of change. Because if we don't get that, it sounds a bit simple and also a bit laborious, but it's so important to help people think in those terms. Work with the policy timetable. If you read, you know, governments publish their legislative timetable, we know when things are coming up. Some things are not going to come up for a year and a half. We can build on that. We, I'm talking, collect not just people in that, I mean, people in the research community, both in and outside government. CSR is a comprehensive spending review. They happen every three years. It looks as if they're going to continue. That's another opportunity where evidence has to be produced to Treasury, not only for what has been spent in the previous round, but what programs they want to invest in for the next round. There's an opportunity there, a KT moment. <coughs> Impact assessments, these are ex ante. At the beginning of all the policy process, you're supposed to do an impact assessment. If you don't know what they are, well, get the slides and look at them. But this is the impact assessment form. Essentially, the first page is just a cost-benefit analysis. So you have to look at the policy options. You have to consider a counterfactual, including doing little or nothing. And then do a cost-benefit analysis. But then you might want to either, if you're interested in this, go on the impact assessment website. You have to, this is a whole bunch of things you have to do here for an administrative nature. But this is, this is, you have to ex ante at the beginning say what are the likely statutory in equality impacts, the economic impacts, the environmental impacts, and the social impacts, which include health and well being, human rights, justice system, rural proofing, and sustainable development. I mean, this is the stuff <coughs> that we should be using research evidence to get into policy I would argue. And the last bit is you have to produce an evidence-based and fairly structured way now. And that can be anywhere between one page, which it shouldn't be, should be supposed to be about eight to nine pages, most are about three pages, or when the Department of Health does them, they're about between 60 and 200 pages, because they've always got lots of evidence. But it's just, an, it is a time uh, when we can, in, in our policy-making process, and by the way, they are cross-European now. We have the European Impact Assessment. <coughs> And then, sorry, see if there's an opportunity for policy pilots and trials. Another piece of work we did when uh, I was in the campus office, we did a review of how policy pilots are used in government. Roger Jowell uh, was the principal researcher and author on it, and we wanted Roger to do it, to be independent of government. So it's, again, it's called trying it out. It's, again, if you're interested in this area, worth a read. The number of pilots and policy trials seems to be growing appreciably. As noted, some pilots are restricted to impact assessments using experimental and experimental designs, including the cost-effectiveness of a new policy, some to process measures, and others cover both. Some include measures of likely added value, others the common beneficiaries' perceptions, that others public opinion in general. In other words, it's both the quant and the qual, the experimental and the experiential. There's lots of opportunities for us to use policy pilots to get our work into practice. And lastly, I put this up here, partly because I'm using this work I'm doing in South Africa, but also we now live in an end of targets culture. 
we've been told that targets didn't work, they were a bad thing, they, 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 were, they were a disaster. Well, in actual fact, and I'm now writing chapters on my new book in this, if you look at where these delivery stretches were used, they were incredibly successful at actually, first of all, achieving what the government wanted to do, and specifically waiting lists, that was the big area, to a certain extent transport, I'm not convinced by the things they measured, um, and uh, uh, one or two other areas. All this is, is, is basically, is where, this is just a piece of monitoring, where you say, here we are, year 2000, 2010, that's where we want to get to, okay? If we worked in an ideal world, we'd just have a straight line, okay? Well, doesn't work like that. Some areas, some health authorities, some educational authorities will be high achievers, some will be low achievers. That's simply the monitoring thing, okay? And that's something the government does quite well. People in operations research do this work. What is important is where the, the machinery that was introduced is when you get three consecutive data points, these can be quarters or years, where you're underachieving, you, you don't just let it go on, you do something. And the do something is called a policy review. Okay? And those policy reviews is where you, you have six weeks very focused on finding out what's going wrong, where is the evidence to put it right, what does research tell us, what, what, what do we have to make of research? It's very much about research and the policy. And one of the most exciting things I ever did the whole six and a half years in government was working on two policy reviews, because it was really, in real time, trying to rescue failing public services by using the evidence that we had from a variety of sources. I'm going to quit there. I have one other point, but it's irrelevant, uh, as I mentioned most of it before. That's how you get hold of me. I think we need to spend some time answering questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can we have some light on? Huh? Yeah. I'd like the audience to survive as well. We'll some water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid we close the windows because of the sound. We're trying to get a good recording for another reason. I always find it very refreshing to listen to film, but I also find it a bit daunting when I think about how policy is really made. They you say you made 300 competent people to form government, do you think we have 300 competent MPs? Small <laughs> well, So lots of, lots of sources. You write down that question. Yes, let's get some questions out, shall we? Yeah, sure. Let's get two or three out and then we'll say what needs to be said. I was at a meeting about five years ago when Michael Marmot brought out his social determinants of health report. It was hosted by the Wellcome Trust, and then they had somebody from the Cabinet Office to tell us as health researchers how to conduct research policy. And somebody from the Cabinet Office came and said, well, what you've got to think is that all MPs want to be re-elected within four years. So that on one side of the paper, you have to have four bullets of actions that they can perform which will improve the lives of their voters before the next election. So that was a kind of slightly more cynical sort of route between research and policy. But I just looked at your models, and they're all involved in some way, contact between the researcher and the politician, they're mediated in different ways. You don't think maybe of having a theory of change that looks at the different constituencies that impact on political decision making? Yeah. Let's let's just note that. You've got four-year horizons, you've got 17-year horizons, as well, yes. Thanks for that that very very interesting. been uh, looking at the whole issue of policy transfer in the developing country context. Yeah. So much. 
And the question I wanted to ask you, the way you presented your work, which I don't think you intended to read that, was there was very little about the political dimension. So political parties, um, and they have ideologies, they have uh, uh, ways of thinking. So do academic researchers. They have right and so on. So the question about when a certain policy would get uh, onto the agenda would, would have to match with political thinking of the time. And you could also then think of, for example, kingdoms, multiple streams, you can think of saboteurs, policy uh, brokers. Uh, and that itself is, is, is quite interesting to understand at what time. And you, your, your organization, you, you could say that you're politically neutral in terms of ideas, as compared to, say, a, a lobbyist who can very quickly secure the evidence in respect of which political belief they are. So I think that there's a difference between what a lobbyist might do Absolutely. and what an academic researcher who's either left or right might want to be across. And I think the classic one is Legrand's competition in the National Health Service, yeah. which was, I mean, he said he was very disappointed because it didn't, didn't get uh, implemented as much as he would. Even having been... Even researchers are politicians. But having been also invited into that ministries to actually advise on Yeah. Still yeah. Yeah. Well, one, one interesting thing he said was when he made his presentation again, the celebration of his life as he's retiring, was he was like being a slave, he said. Because he was there to make to advise on policy, but suddenly the whole MRSA thing came out of hospitals. Yeah. Immediately, who cares about your policy thing? This is what you need to That's deal with. Contingency. Absolutely. So what do you, what should the Prime Minister say? How should they react and, and so on and so forth? Thank you, thank you. Uh, two two questions, Martin and then Okay, mine is a slightly different one, because I'm thinking about the, um, the pressure that uh, researchers have, that we have in this room, and others have, to demonstrate and to evidence the impact that we have. Um, and I just, um, I think the comparison, because it's, things have gone so well, there's a Cochrane and others, uh, initiatives and so on, because the, the development of these approaches has gone a long way forward in health, in other areas, we're always being compared with having an impact uh, is mirrored by the difficulty of, de of evidence impact. Yeah. So, um, and and I, I'm afraid I cannot resist um, one little addition to this because um, within the NIHR, National Institute of Health Research, uh, there is a chap who has developed something called the Impact Dashboard, which is a way to try and develop uh, people. Uh, and given your slide about um, what influences civil servants and the, um, the difference between the plankton um, I need to mention that the chap who's doing this in IHR is called David Krill. So, I see relevance, but I think yeah. the question about how do we evidence these important. Yeah. Thank you. And another question. Yeah, I want to comment. Always, and it strikes me from an international and comparative perspective um, how different these systems are and how different policy making is, and then you know, the different routes of how evidence gets into policy. And, from an outsider's perspective, I would always think that the, the Whitehall Westminster model is perfectly suited for a relatively straightforward approach if you compare this to political negotiations between, you know, in coalition governments, for example, performance. Um, but it also has, you know, its kind of interesting own characteristics, for example, that uh, civil servants tend to be generalists and move a lot around between government departments, for example. I think one of the questions I would have is, does this impact on what kind of knowledge people build and whether this then kind of 
This may be different for somebody for social care and health care, or people who work in a strategy group, as opposed to somebody who's in a more delivery-oriented part of the department. Yeah. But um, you, you have a different opportunity to build up long-term knowledge and whether this kind of impacts on the use of evidence. And the other aspect of this also thing is I read a really interesting paper, and I just forgot the name of the author. What makes a good policymaker in, in the British government? And that was about the incentives on careers to be seen as effective. And effectiveness is something <coughs> through a process of bringing a bill to fruition and into legislation, I say. And then part of this is to use evidence at the appropriate stages. But it also kind of gives an explanation why you would have an incentive to use it selectively, because it kind of shapes your view on what you want to know and how you can strengthen your case to, you know, for submissions and to ministers or something like that. So um, I think there are a lot of kind of interesting details about the British civil service and that shape, you know, how this plays out. And international differences. Okay, and any other questions, just hold on to them at the time. Let's get some responses from you as well. Yeah. Um, four bullets to put this. Write this down for. Uh, um, oh, yeah, the four bullets. And, yeah, uh, the, the last slide which I put up was going to talk about the 1325, which is, again, it's uh, one of the other things out of Jonathan Lomas's uh, grouping. In Canada, which um, just as a, as a way of getting uh, or presenting research evidence, says that uh, you need for every policy document to have a one pager, which is the one that would be read by a minister, possibly a senior person advising the minister, because they have quite a lot on their plate, and pretty much more than what, a series of one pages. Uh, a three pager is the classic executive summary. And the killer is that no document should be more than 25 pages, the, the, the circulating government. They introduced this in Canada in the late 90s and was very effective at changing, certainly the amount of reading of research evidence. Uh, and Lomas would argue that actually people started thinking very much in terms of have you read the three page, have you read the one page? So it was trying to get presentational formats that were certainly better than what the 200-page research report that many of us write. Um, and of course, usually now when you're commissioned, you are asked to write first either a one or a three or something, and following the old Cochrane principle, uh, a plain English summary. So I think there's things about just presentation that we need to think about. But I like your point about different constituents. I think that is important, is that you need that in that representation of different <coughs> constituencies. And I think that's something... That we can in, in, that, that can be put into the research portfolio, that they can actually represent those different constituencies and get different voices into the policy game, or the practice game for that matter. But it is coming back to having some quite succinct ways of doing it, and it's about a different style of writing, it's about a different style of presentation, which again, our dear friends in the uh, or enemies in the lobby groups are very good at doing. You know, you know, the amount of nonsense they can get into one graph is incredible. <laughs> but it carries weight. Okay, first point. Um, I, yeah, I didn't want to ignore the political dimension. In fact, when I said it's about values and beliefs, that's what I was trying to get into. Um, the, the, another way that I didn't have time to go into, is that, that I'm working on oddly in South Africa rather than here, is trying to go upstream, which is to start getting evidence into the political parties much earlier. 
You get it to a certain extent here with things like IPPR and DEMOS and policy exchange and all the different CPSC, the different think tanks you have here. But one way, again, I've learned this from Canada, is to, is to work with their political parties, particularly when they're in opposition. When they're trying to put together a new package, a new set of policies, it's, a, it's when you've got the time to be a bit more reflective. I think the evidence for that is, and Steve would say whether I'm right or wrong on this, when Labour came into power in 1997, to use that dreadful phrase, it hit the ground running with the New Deals. Because it had done quite a lot of preparatory work, I think, while it was in opposition. It had done the homework, as it were. And I think within the first year, the first New Deals were up and running. Now, so, so that's another way, is, is to get into the political machinery, other than uh, just into the political process in government. But also, just also remember that a lot of policy-making isn't done in the political sphere. It's done in the policy sphere. And of course, they interact. But a lot of policy-makers... Well, no, policy-makers basically are civil servants. It's, it's, how, it's how they are interpreting the political agenda and how they do... They, they are the knowledge brokers, I guess, because they're trying to get that to and fro But the political dimension is absolutely crucial. No, no doubt about that. Um, Right. Uh, comparison with health. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it is relatively, relatively easy with health for a number of reasons. One is most of the health professions are themselves very research-based. Certainly medicine is. Nursing has become that. Occupational therapy, physical therapy. Now, I don't want to offend anybody here, but I don't think social work is as research-based as a profession. Mike, I don't know you agree, across the piece, I think there are researchers in the social work area, but I don't think this is a research-based profession as much as nursing and certainly as much as medicine. So there's that dimension is that the practitioners are not as research-based. That's one element. The other thing is, of course, in, once we get out of health, we do probably draw on a, on a wider, maybe actually a narrower, <laughs> I'm not sure which, range of methodologies. So we don't have the corpus of well-proven trials that medicine's had for time immemorial. We have a much more fluid use of both quantitative and qualitative, sometimes under-researched, sometimes under-resourced, but above all, I think, under-synthesized. We haven't really brought together social science knowledge the way in which health sciences have done it. And that means that we don't really speak with a strong voice. Uh, and I know when we set Campbell up, 11, 12 years ago, that was one of the driving forces of the collaboration, collaboration was to have a, a group of people who really would not just bring together the trials evidence, which has been many arguments, but bring together the whole body of social science research and try to make it coherent. And it's hard to make a coherent and a cost-benefit analysis coherent, if you think of it. I mean, if you're trying to get, sorry, let me say that sentence again. It's hard to make a cost-benefit analysis and an ethnography and a social survey to get into a coherent whole. But I think that's what we have to do in order to, 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 to make the voice of social science uh, more, more uh, available. Um, and as for an impact dashboard, I must go look at that. That sounds just too intriguing to be true. And then the last point I'd like to say um, uh, is uh, the, the, the use of evidence, is, is to go back to an issue of transparency. Um, it, it really, to the point I did make, but I want to bring it out again, it really is difficult to hide evidence nowadays. It's certainly hard for governments. I mean, long before WikiLeaks and Wikipedia and 
Twitter or the social media, we're making it even harder to hide evidence. Just the existence of the internet and, and also the capacity of the general search engines. I mean, Google Scholar is getting so good now. When I'm searching academically, I usually use the Oxford University Library because it's so good, their search engine. But I come out of it to use Google because it gets it three times faster than the Oxford University search engines. So people can get evidence very, very quickly. And uh, I remember Ron, a man who used to be our boss in the camera office, saying that the more you have an educated populace, the even harder it is to be non-evidence-based. So if we, if we don't have, as a research community, any evidence of practice, actually people are beginning to do it in their own right. They're beginning to demand higher levels of knowledge use, evidence use. Uh, again, the leaders come from healthcare. The, 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 the users group in healthcare, I think, are much more developed. So patients groups. And within that, so there's the breast cancer groups, there's the prostate cancer <coughs> all sorts of groups which are very active users groups who are two steps ahead, often, even of nice. They have really got into what the available evidence is. And that means you have to, you, you do, I used to do ethnographies in surgeries. People go in, they say to their doctors, I want A, B, C, and D. And this is the effect size I'm looking for. And I want this drug. I, I don't want the generic. I want this particular brand name. Because they've actually got that evidence. We're nowhere near that in the criminal justice system. You know, parents asking for the, school, with the, the knowledge base on which parents choose their schools worries me. Certainly if it's using the standardised things that the Daily Mail puts out based on the SATs, things like that. Push, push you a bit more on the, some of the points that were raised about four-year decision-making cycles in government, yeah. 17 years to get into cardiac um, intervention, cardiac therapy. Oh, the 19 Seven, years. 17 years. 17 years. Well, I got on that one. And the point, yeah. an idea about generalist civil servants don't accumulate specialist knowledge in order to be able to build that community. That's the point, yeah. Got any views on I, I do. Well, partly it's to do with the organisation of civil service. is is certainly to, as a many professionals, to succeed, you, you rotate a lot. So civil service... Yeah, that's right. So you totally get there half a dozen departments quite quickly to build up a, a repertoire of background. I mean, I, I know that one of the... Some of the things behind the professional skills of government was to have people spending more time becoming more specialist. Uh, one of those competencies, by the way, was to have a broader experience, and part of that was to actually go out of the civil service for a couple of years and come back. Most people went out and never came back. Uh, guess what? So I think um, there are moves to try and get more specialist in civil service, but, but again, that really did start in the 1830s and again in the 1920s and then the Haldane Report and then in the 1960s with the Fulton Committee. We haven't got there yet, but, but there is a desire to do that. The four-year cycle, yes, there are four-year cycles, um, but for instance, I think the Blair government knew in 1997 <coughs> that it was in for 10 to 13 years. If you get in with the majority of 170, the chances of you being out in four, four, five years is very little. So there are exceptions to that. And I think, who knows, whether this will be in for 13 years, I'm not sure. Uh, but remember, there is a policy-making culture that goes beyond just four-year governments. Uh, and that's where developing that, that not only specialised civil service, and this is where they have absolutely failed, in my opinion. They haven't built the knowledge capture and knowledge management 
structures they should do in government. The famous organizational memory. It is pathetic the way that things, I'm seeing it now, things that are being tried and tested are the things that we were working on in 2000 through 2005. They're almost as, they've just got a different badge on them. And you think they're not, for political purposes, they're not giving due credit for what went before. But I didn't think the civil service has an institutional memory. It started. It started in 2000 to have something called knowledge pools. But Steve and I probably worked on them. Certainly a colleague of ours, Sharon Jones, Jones worked on them. They stopped after 18 months because there's nobody really rang with it. Uh, to say that governments need to, you know, this isn't just Britain, same issue in Canada, same issue certainly in South Africa, where we've forgotten something's happened just 17 years ago. There's no notion that you're building and accumulating knowledge. And I think that's where governments go plural. In fact, if you had to make a show me government that actually does build knowledge and accumulate it and be able to access it, I'd be very, very pleased. I use two sites to do that. I use PACE and PolicyFile. I know people use them. PACE International, P-I-I-S, which is Public and Administrative Information Systems. It's an open access database. A policy file is another one very similar. I think that's open access. And what that is, it's a repository of uh, proven, attempted, failed, forgotten about initiatives from around the world. And it's populated by things like the Kennedy School at Harvard, the Hoover, the Hoover School at Stanford. Uh, it, it's very American-centered, I'm afraid. The uh, whatever it's called is Ottawa. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. Uh, there is an Indian group in there. There's an African group in there as well. So there, there are sources outside of government that are trying to have that repository, but it is very underdeveloped. And nowhere near, shall we say, a Cochrane Library or the NICE directory or anything like that. It's way, way off the pace. Can I, can I yeah, please. <coughs> um, it would be really interesting to unpick this about you know, your comment about um, institutional memory because I think there is an organizational component to this. How is knowledge managed or how is research managed? Especially also research that's commissioned by departments, for example. Um, and one experience I had is that I've been on my team or the team I'm part of was asked the same question by the same team within three years. Yeah. It, was just, it was a different person there, but you wonder, don't they have these things on their filing system somehow, and then we've already submitted a report on the same thing. So that was one experience. Um, and, and then the other one, I think, is connected to your earlier comment on anecdotes. I think there's something like almost like an oral tradition, isn't it? Yeah. So that this is, I mean, there's a, something very human about remembering the anecdote as opposed to the number or the complicated yeah. evidence or case or so. Um, but also, you know, in the absence of you know, perhaps a more formalized structure, I think it becomes even more important. But something that struck me was people who returned from, I looked at international comparison before learning from abroad, and um, people who returned from study tours, um, spent three um, days, for example, in Germany, and then I met three people that all told the same story about robots and hospitals and how effective they were managing the laundry system. Which was not the point of the whole study tour at all, but it's something that's memorable and that's retold. And it's almost like you know this, these kind of things live on. So I think there is almost like a you know like an oral tradition or natural thing that kind of strengthens your aspect on, on anecdotes. I think that's really interesting. I just thought we don't have oral historians in government. 
interesting. I mean, it's flippant, but it may be a sensible thing to think about. People who actually do their job is to be. We don't have historians, to my knowledge, who work at capturing either the explicit written history or that oral tradition. I think that's a Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I can't see that taking place in Whitehall, but I can see the case for it. I think we should make that the last point. One last point, because you've been very patient. There you go. Um, in terms of getting research into practice, you as a researcher, as we as researchers, may have ideas that we think yeah. should be the way things should be done. Um, so have you ever come across, say, ethical uh, dilemmas or the sense of where you believe it should be done a certain way? and it hasn't been done the way that you'd like it to be done. And then how do you resolve those sorts of issues? I hope you mean by that not just the ethics of research, which is yeah. one issue. I yeah. mean the ethics of policy. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to have worked with some people in Oxford uh, and, and who do this very well. Tony Hope, some people may know Tony. He's a clinical ethicist. He's a psychiatrist and a philosopher. And I've learned so much from working with Tony. One of the things he's taught me, me personally, and I try and help to think about the ethical dimension of policy making. It's the sort of the, the, the important next circle when you've gone through all these like the theory of change, the randomized control trial, the survey ethnography. What are the ethics of it? And I, I through Tony's tutelage, think about it. The policy making is always about trade offs. Yeah? It's about trading one group off against another, usually, anyway. So, and Tony has this really wonderful example that we, I've used in many cases. If you've got a million pound left, say half a million pound, the current, a few hundred pound left in the health budget, okay, you could spend it on one of two things. You could spend it on a special care baby unit, or you could spend it on a care of the elderly unit. And what Tony does is, what would you do? And if I did it here, I know that most of you would say chip babies, okay? You then go through, because that's almost a natural reaction on babies are cute. You say, why did you say that? Because all oh, babies are cute. They're futures ahead of them, this, that, and the other. And they say, the special care baby units, we're talking about babies less than 1,500 grams at birth. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Then you look at some of the issues, you, you analyze as you go through it. By the end of that little exercise, nearly everybody changes to the care of the elderly unit. Now, Tony's point is, that that sort of decision, that trade-off, is it is an ethical issue because it comes out how we value early life and late life. And the trouble is we value both. But the more information you get, the more evidence you get, you can just shift that balance. It's an extremely it's an exciting thing to see. It's a dangerous thing to see. Because within a half an hour, certainly an hour of this workshop that he does, he takes you from wanting to build a special care baby unit to closing it and having a care of the elderly unit. Okay? Because when you look at the. Now, his point, my point is that policy making isn't just a technocratic exercise. It's not a cost benefit study. We use the cost benefit study with the qualities and the qualities and whatever you want to measure to try and find out the relative, if you like, from a reconstituted logic point of view, the relative merits of each. But ultimately, it is about how we value babies and elderly people. Hence why things like in healthcare, the Oregon method is tried, we've tried citizens' juries, we've tried all sorts of consultative ways, so that those decisions are made on some collective notions of value, rather than just that those few people who are in decisions. 
who often make it on wholly arbitrary grounds don't realise they're making massively ethical issues. Massively ethical issues. And I said earlier, don't get me going on Iraq, because that's the whole issue behind Iraq. It was trading off one set of important political processes against others. That's for another day. Or anywhere where we can. Thank you very much, Elvis. We finally got ethics into the mix. We're in the knowledge pool. We've got sharks and plankton. Managed to add krill. Look, Mr. Krill. Lots of krill. I'm glad the sharks have got ethics at last. Thank you very much for this daunting, but refreshing. And I hope you've all enjoyed and learned something this afternoon. Thank you very much.